Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Got a great episode for you today. We'll speak a little bit later with Dan Hawkins. He's the CEO of Avail Med Systems. Avail will be at Device Talks West, which, of course, is happening on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. And speaking of the Santa Clara Convention Center, I got to visit it this week. Kayleen Brown, our managing editor, and I went out to Santa Clara. We uh, toured the site where the uh, Device Talks West will be happening. You can actually find a video of that on LinkedIn. And we also conducted our MedTech Nerd Tour. Uh, we tracked down many of the buildings of many of the OEMs who we've written about and covered over the last decade or two and have uh, in, who are contributing speakers and sending attendees to Device Talks West. So make sure you follow us on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi and Kayleen Brown to uh, keep tabs on our MedTech Nerd Tour 2023. I uh, had a lot of fun with Kayleen doing that. And then the next day on Tuesday, we attended the MedTech Vision Conference, which is the event put on by MedTech Women. Just a fantastic event. Kaylin and I will go uh, over the more powerful points that we felt we uh, experienced at MedTech Vision, but there were many, many more things that we're not covering. I highly recommend uh, anyone consider attending a future MedTech Vision, uh, Vision event. has uh, a great messaging, and I think everyone left with uh, a greater sense of purpose. So once again, Device Talks West is happening on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. We would like to thank our podcast listeners uh, for being podcast listeners and for listening to these words right here by uh, giving a discount code. We've done this in the past. Always grateful to have our Device Talks weekly listeners uh, at Device Talks West or our Device Talks Boston event. Uh, and please, when you do attend, make sure you track us down and say hello. It's always great to meet uh, to meet our listeners. You can attend Device Talks West for uh, 25% less if you use this code. DTW25. So DTW, that obviously stands for Device Talks Weekly 25. So when you're registering, just type in DTW25. You'll save 25% off the full price of $695. Again, we'd love to see you at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Go to west.devicetalks.com to check out the agenda. All the speakers will have over 60 speakers. I'm thinking it's actually going to be over 70. And uh, they're the people you want to meet. And they're the people you'll need to know to help you get the job done. So I hope you'll join us at Device Talks West. Again, go to west.devicetalks.com or just hit devicetalks.com. You'll find the page for Device Talks West. Join us on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Uh, finally, I didn't say this at the end of the show, but please do subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you get future episodes of Device Talks Weekly, Intuitive Talks, Abbott Talks, Boston Scientific Talks, Striker Talks and more talks are coming. So subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. All right, that's it. You've got your discount code. You've got your your uh, your plea to join us at Device Talks West on October 18th and 19th. And uh, let's get this podcast episode started. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Kayleen Brown, how are you? I could not be better, Tom. Thank you. It's been so long since we've seen each other in person, at least 
two I'm full days. Missing. Two full days. <laughs> it feels like a week in med tech years. Oh my gosh, what a what a week though. I'm I'm, I'm it's Friday afternoon when we're recording this, and I'll admit I'm I'm dragging a little bit. I'm dragging a little bit. Yeah, well, it was my first in-person event since being on a maternity leave, and I. <laughs> Not only, am I like? dra- <laughs> not only am I dragging, Tom, uh, a unique experience happened on the airplane back, <laughs> <laughs> which I think carries over to my exhaustion today. Uh, so I'm on the airplane on my way back to my home office, my home, my infant. And uh, typically when I come back from an in-person event, you know, we had spent at least 72 hours networking. You're on, you're using all of your brain power. (laughs) And then it's that, you know, flight home and you go, oh, I get to just relax, watch TV, order delivery. And as I was flying home, I went, I have to hit the grocery store. Oh no, he's almost out of diapers. (laughs) My grandma has been home. I've got to relieve grandma. Oh, I, 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 he's starting to have sleep issues. Oh, should we transition to one nap? Uh, the, the pediatrician said that we we have to transition in within a month. Uh, so it was, <laughs> if anything, felt like I was doing another in-person event back to back. So, yes, uh, I, I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I do not feel yours anymore. I have felt your pain. And I, I, I think I had shared when my boys were young that I actually looked forward to the plane rides because it was just six hours of uninterrupted whatever. No one was going to be asking me for anything. I could just sit there, watch a movie of my choosing. It was glorious. Uh, that went away. I'm not really enjoying the plane rides as much as I did back then, but uh, I'm uh, I'm familiar with your familiar with your experience and I, I hope it was a, a smooth re-entry back into uh, into the home. Yeah, very much. Happy to be home, but really, really happy to have seen you in person, to seen some of the most amazing senior execs in the medtech industry, getting back in the game, feeling more like myself, a medtech millennial again. Uh, so happy all around. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I kind of alluded to what we had, how we spent our two days uh, at the at the top of the podcast. But uh, just to to reiterate, so we we spent Monday driving around in a in a arrest me red Mustang, uh, <laughs> doing our medtech nerd tour, uh, recording uh, messages in front of uh, the the buildings of uh of some of our partners for device talks with some of the companies that are providing speakers i learned later that they maybe they weren't all the headquarters we needed to go but we got the signs in the videos and i, and I think that'll do it but uh that was a lot of fun just kind of hitting the road and and sort of uh catching up because we hadn't seen each other in over a decade obviously we've talked on zoom and that that accounts for something but it's not as as uh the, the connection isn't as strong as as it is when you're both sitting in the front seats of uh of a ridiculously red Mustang, which it was. I, I agree on both accounts. Ridiculously red, but very appropriate for California weather. So you had that nailed down. Yeah. But you know, I've always found 
that front seat talks sometimes are the deepest, most meaningful talks that you can have, even just face to face. Nothing Absolutely. really compares to the driver passenger discussion. Uh, so it was just so terrific to catch up on our lives, uh, the future of our personal lives, the future of device talks, and just feel like we can have really open dialogue for an entire day. And then have it highlighted with seeing some of our very favorite partners and supporters mm -hmm. and speakers for Device Talks West. Uh, I think I had shared with you uh, when you first asked if I would be willing to join you for the nerd tour, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which appropriately named, if I would even be interested in joining you. And I had shared with you that my husband, who's also in the medical device industry, and I play the I spy game with medical device companies That's anytime right. we're yeah, in a hospital or a medical uh, setting. So seeing the strikers and imperative care and intuitive and Abbott and so on, seeing the names is really such a thrill for me. Uh, <laughs> so I was very happy to join you. Very happy to see the buildings uh, of the uh, the people that we spend so much time with. You know, it just feels like there's more of a connection. And next time, Tom, uh, maybe we enter the building. If maybe. I maybe. Oh my gosh! I think I would soon. <laughs> we are we are economy sized nerds because you're right. When we pulled past intuitive, we were like, look, look, look. There it is. <laughs> Very much fangirling on my end. <laughs> yeah. And we were out taking photos and people walking by, intuitive employees, just wondering, what the heck are those people doing here? And should I call security? So thankfully, no one did. Uh, we weren't we weren't uh, scared off of any properties. And uh, yeah, we'll be posting those videos on LinkedIn uh, in the coming week or so. And we might have a little kind of a madcap recap video as well. So, but the, the other than getting together and talking, which was actually a very important reason to, to get out there. Uh, our primary purpose for the visit was to uh, attend MedTech Vision, which uh, I thought was uh, was fantastic. Uh, what was your takeaway from the conference? There's a lot of things uh, running through my head at the moment, uh, but I had actually written a LinkedIn post right after the first session, the mm -hmm. patient keynote with Hafiza Muhammad. And um, the communication in that LinkedIn was, I am shook. I still am. Mm -hmm. I very much am, am still shook. The narrative and the, the the vulnerable story that Hafiza shared with us, I think, resonated with everybody in the audience. Uh, shared the story of uh, lack of communication, patient advocacy, and then, uh, of of course, you know, showcasing the healthcare providers who um, you know went out of their way to advocate on her and her daughter's behalf, and how that was very meaningful and uh, inspired change uh, with her within her own experience, and you know what Hafiza has done since then. I felt that that opening patient keynote really set the stage for the rest of the day where mm -hmm. we were talking about uh, health equity and what each and every one of us, uh, Metec women and allies of Metec women, of course, uh, could do to advance health equity uh, in, in our own ways. And I, every step of the way, kind of talking with all of the attendees, uh, listening to the incredible keynotes and the uh, interviews, I felt that really was the driving force and having Hathiza's story as the, uh, the the anchor or something that we all kept coming back to, it felt like 
striving toward health equity was really personal. So I think mm-hmm. that was really special for MedTech Women, MedTech Vision uh, to kick the, the event off in a really personal way. And it felt, at least from my perspective, that I had an investment in these discussions, an investment with every conversation I had uh, throughout the day and a responsibility to do what I can do uh, to advance health equity and what you and I can do together with the Device Talks platform to amplify uh, the right messages and put the right messages in front of the right people to take those steps forward mm-hmm. to health equity. So, th- like I said, there's a lot going on in my head right now, and I still need time to really process and to take away and think through what, and I, I said again, responsibility, but think through like what I can do today what I can do next week, what I can do the week after, and so on and so on. And it's actually uh, not to tie in Device Talks West coming up October 18th and 19th so blatantly at the moment, but I think it's appropriate to do so. Uh, It's really energized me for that event because I want to carry that energy over and take some of the lessons learned and the conversations that we had to that event and ask all of our incredible speakers, 66 of them, and all of our incredible attendees, uh, hundreds of attendees, from the medical device industry and ask each and every one of them, what can you do with your platform and your sphere of influence to advance health equity? Well, I agree with you. Hafisa's message was powerful. She talked about how her infant daughter had contracted RSV and the the challenges she had um, getting her treated. And I got the sense that it wasn't necessarily, she didn't explain or she didn't detail where she got the care, but I think the roadblocks that were put up in front of her were roadblocks that might be put up in front of many people who are advocating for their child and who are facing a healthcare system that sometimes maybe isn't taking the time it, it is ne- that's necessary to ensure that the care delivered is the care that's needed. Um, but one of her charges at the end was to everyone in the room, the medical device industry folks in the room, and there were over 200, to consider developing more devices, more tools to treat infants and, and young children, um, which I, you know, we've, once that was up on, on LinkedIn, folks talked about market sizes and things like that, but you're, I've had young children, you have a young child, that argument doesn't really fly when you've got a, a person, a young person, a person who needs care. I mean, there, there should be devices for them as well. So uh, again, not to make this about Device Talks West, but I'm really glad that Avid is taking the time to put together a panel. We'll have a panel on, on day two, designing devices for the world's smallest patients. We'll have physicians on there. Brian Holt, he's the Division Chief of Pediatric Cardiology at the University of Texas, uh, Austin Dell Medical School. We'll have Frank Ng, he's a pediatric cardiologist at UC Davis Health. Uh, Lars Sundergaard, who is the Divisional Vice President of Medical Affairs and CMO of Structural Heart at Abbott, and Katie Frazier, she's Global Marketing Manager for Abbott Heart's Failure Division, talking about this this very topic, uh, which we obviously had organized months before, so we're not responding to, to Hafiz's challenge, but uh, I'm glad the challenge was anticipated, and I'm grateful to Abbott, one of our many partners, uh, for putting together that panel and, and, and addressing this important topic. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I actually, from your generosity, Tom, had first right of refusal for uh, moderating open sessions for Device Talks West and the pediatric panel really resonated with me. And not 
even from my own recent experience having my own child, my first child, uh, but the idea in keeping this theme of health equity, you know, looking at medical devices from a different lens and, you know, one size doesn't fit all. So very much appreciative to Abbott for recognizing the need for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Haviz's experience really solidified that. And then also had me reflect on my own experience, my own birth story. And uh, my son, Jensen, uh, was actually in the NICU. So I, we oh, have, wow. uh, and I'm, I haven't shared that story, but I will because Afiza and uh, Metic Women have charged us with being more vulnerable and telling more of our own stories. Julie Tyler in particular, mm-hmm. um, president of Abbott's Vascular Business, had very much shared her own incredible story. And I'm sure you'll kind of talk to that. But because of uh, these women in our space have asked us to share our stories, I'm going to stand on their shoulders and do it and hope that it uh, resonates with somebody else out there. But uh, my own birth story was uh, not how it was supposed to go. I had an emergency C-section. Jensen had his um, cord tied around his neck. We oh, had gosh. seconds, really, uh, to rush into the OR. I wasn't even able to call or uh, update my family. I remember that the uh, clinicians in the support team threw surgical gear at my husband and said, keep up. We ran in. Uh, they had the NICU team in the room uh, to support Jensen, which uh, was really comforting in itself, even though it was very scary. But just knowing that I was in the right place at the right time with the right people, that in itself was very comforting. And um, while I uh, was getting... Uh, stitched up in care after delivery. I could see out of the corner of my eye, a team of nine working on my son and Mm. thinking the same thing that I thought when I saw Haviza uh, Haviza this uh, last week, or I guess it was just this week, uh, that these devices, these, this equipment oversized equipment on this tiny, tiny little baby. And that almost more than anything else was scary. Uh, So just knowing that I get to have a small part in communicating devices designed for the smallest patients in the world uh, with the help of Abbott makes me feel like maybe I'm taking a little power back from that Mm -hmm. experience and um, feels like, once again, the industry that I have chosen to spend my life in is the right industry and really the best industry in the world. Because how many people can say that they've had this very traumatic experience, scariest experience of your life, but we have the opportunity to do something about it and in the right way? Because there's right. no blame here. It is just about what we know now, leveraging our relationships, getting the right people in front of each other, getting money into uh, our industry so that we can provide more innovative equipment, more innovative devices, uh, fund research, and to really get more equitable care for everybody who needs it, regardless of age or background or, um, you know, whatever defines us, uh, the right medical device for the right person at the right time. Absolutely. No, very well said. And and thank you for, for sharing that. And I know, I know there are others who have had similar uh, experiences and there's nothing more frightening than those, those moments uh, at that time. And what was neat about Hafiz's plea is you could, you could hear that sort of thing at 
a conference on, on on many topics, but the fact that she was talking directly to people who could make a difference, who could go back to their employers and, and maybe not immediately, but steer decisions one way or the other to 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 make a real difference it's we're we're really fortunate and honored to I think to be in an industry where where that sort of thing can happen to your point so and uh and as like you i'm privileged to help lead those conversations that might spark even further uh further change so very well said though and, th- and thank you for sharing that uh I, I think and i wrote about this in linkedin this morning i think the other important point, or I don't want to say high point, but the other powerful point of the day uh, or of the conference, and there were many, I, I shouldn't limit it to these two. Uh, there were points throughout the day where I was probably one of the only uh, maybe four or five men in the room, uh, but they, I understood the, the, the importance of it and they connected with me. I have a wife, I have children. I've experienced these things, not directly, but they've, they've impacted me. So uh, I wasn't just sitting there listening and not relating to what was being said. So it was in, for, for folks who are considering going future MedTech Vision events, you know, I, I would strongly, uh, invi- I'd strongly advise, or I would, I would encourage men in the industry to, to make the time. I know there are, there are others there as well. And, and uh, the leadership of MedTech women are, are very clear that they'd like more men to be in the room. So uh, it, and uh, it was really, really a wonderful time. But anyway, the other, I think moments that, ripped folks was julie tyler's uh she's the senior she's the president of abbott vascular her uh receiving the the farrell and powell award uh farrell and powell was the uh ceo of evalve which would be acquired by abbott which was developed had evalve had developed a mitra clip and uh she unfortunately passed away in an accident in 2015 uh but they give this award every year and uh julie tyler uh rightfully Receive the award or, 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 um, deservedly receive the award. But she also, uh, really rose up to, to deliver a strong message where she shared her own very powerful story about her daughter, Meredith, who was born with, uh, with a congenital heart, uh, defect that ultimately took her life at the age of 11, despite medical intervention, uh, with medical devices. And, uh, the, the, the message that Julie Tyler shared was that the people in the room and the people in our industry and the people we talk to and ourselves, we have the opportunity to turn that kind of pain into, into purpose, which I think is a, a real gift. If you can, again, take something that is frankly unimaginable and try to turn it into something that maybe may save someone from that similar experience down the road. So um, more than impressed and blown over and, and, and bowled over by Julie Tyler's grace and powerful delivery and uh really really inspired to uh to speak with her she'll be our opening keynote at device talks west again a bit of a coincidence but uh a good one and uh, i'm very happy to have her opening up our our uh, our discussions on october 18th so i know i wasn't sitting next to you during this presentation but i'm guessing you had similar feelings Absolutely. <laughs> I think I wrote pain into purpose in my notebook yeah. 50 times as Julie was uh, kind of walking us through her uh, her story. And I, I've had the privilege of hearing the story before, but now through the, the lens of practical application. So that was really interesting. So uh, Julie's experience at Abbott uh, coming in 
at Abbott as in sales, which is actually the same way that I got into the medical device mm. industry. So there was a lot of commonality there and understanding that sure you can leave the organization and try to find ways to grow there. Uh, but Julie had such a connection to Abbott and really wanted to build her career within that organization. And one of the things that Julie had shared was finding the right people. Uh, within the company who supported not only her own vision, but practical steps for her to advance. And uh, one of the sort of takeaways that I had from uh, Julie's acceptance speech was putting your own career, your own purpose in your own hands and asking for help, but not just asking for help in a passive way, mm -hmm. asking for help in a way that has an actionable plan that can have follow through. Uh, so she had shared that she um, connected with senior leadership at Abbott, knew exactly where she wanted to go from where she was and said, what are the steps I need to take to get there? I'm committed to taking these steps. She had uh, supporters and advisors who helped her every step of the way. She followed through on her commitments uh, over, you know, exceeded expectations every step of the way. And now she is um, president of the incredibly influential group that creates devices that would have had a direct impact on mm -hmm. her daughter and her mm -hmm. own experience. So if that doesn't communicate turning pain into purpose and showing a way to not just communicate a want, but develop an actionable plan that leads to execution and where she is today, I don't know what it so inspiring. Cannot wait until the 18th uh, to hear more. You're lucky that you get to be in the other seat there, Tom. I am. I am. I, I do really really uh, enjoy my job and I'm, I'm honored by the opportunities it presents. So definitely looking forward to to that conversation. I'll be talking with Julie uh, in a few weeks just to sort of uh, go over the, the the points that she'd like to cover. And again, a really super, super powerful way to open up uh, Device Talks West. Again, coincidentally, uh, this wasn't part of our plan, but uh, we talked about Farrell and Powell, startup CEO, uh, led eValve to acquisition by Abbott, uh, developed the MitraClip, We'll have a conversation about uh, the MitraClip a little later in that after same afternoon that Julie Tyler will be opening. Uh, we'll be talking with Santosh Prabhu, who's Divisional Vice President of Global Product Development at Abbott, and uh, Dr. Fred St. Gore. He's an interventional cardiologist, El Camino Health. And I'll be uh, leading that conversation to uh, to understand the past, present, and the future of the MitraClip. So uh, lots of great opportunities for folks to understand uh where these uh, these really powerful devices are headed, and uh, where this company Abbott is uh, is really moving forward. So I know this is a Abbott heavy conversation. Uh, we're drawing again heavily off of our experiences at uh, at MedTech Vision. Uh, we will have presentations and, and keynotes by Intuitive Surgical and Stryker and Medtronic and Boston Scientific and many, many more companies. So uh, this is uh, this is the topic of the week. And uh, I, I think folks should really take a look at the agenda. Go to west.devicetalks.com to see what conversations uh, appeal to them. And hopefully we can, I would love very much if folks left our meeting uh, with the same feeling that I think we left MedTech Vision. I don't know if we'll have as powerful effect, but I hope our conferences are empowering and, and give folks 
the sense that they can make a difference in some regard, develop a device that needs to be made, complete a project that needs to be compl- completed, and to ultimately help patients who, who need to be helped. I, I hope I hope we're able to achieve that. Once again, Tom, we're on the same page. If I could do <laughs> one shout out, one request about the event. Shout. Um, before Shout, shout, shout it out. Uh, um, you and I have really tried to open up the conversations either on our podcasts, our web series, our in-person events, our webinars. We've tried to open up the conversation and ask for the industry stakeholders to share what information that they're looking for, what they want to hear. And um, part of that uh, initiative that you and I have sort of developed was opening up an opportunity to ask a panelist. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to implore to all of our medical device supporters in our space, regardless if you're on the ideation side, the commercialization side, the uh, FDA, IP side, research, it doesn't matter you know, where you touch the full medical device product continuum, uh, but please reach out to Tom Salemi, Kayleen Brown on LinkedIn. And if you are receiving our email communications, there's an option to ask a panelist a question that's burning. Please use that. It goes directly to Tom himself. <laughs> uh, it is not a fake email address. I it is not. And I, and I actually giggled when, when you told me, push the button. And I pushed the button. <laughs> I, I, I might have even squealed. I'm not sure. It was... <laughs> It was that neat. So yes, you'll have a direct line. That's the that's the red line, the, the red phone, the bat line, whatever you want to call it. You'll get it right to uh, to myself, and I'll be sure to say it, uh, to share it with Kayleen immediately. Uh, please do use uh, use those buttons. Uh, it would be great to hear from folks and hear hear what they want to have uh, have discussed at Device Talks West. It'll be great. The conversation is not just one way. It is. No multifaceted, multiple opinions on it. So please, please, please reach out. Let us know what you want to hear. We'll connect you to the right people because that's really what Device Talks is, getting the right people in front of each other to forge relationships, get innovation moving forward. And we need your help to do that. So hopefully we see you there. If not, connect with us on social. So be part of the digital presence and never hesitate to reach out to me and Tom, I'm going to speak for for you here, but reach out to Tom as well. If there's anything that we could do to support you and amplify your message, uh, that is why we are here. Absolutely. Uh, we will, uh, we'll do our, our social media sign-offs after this uh, interview with, uh, after the interview with Daniel uh, Hawkins, who's the CEO of Avail Med Systems. But just to circle back, I do want to uh, thank MedTech Women for their partnership. We're happy to help them promote MedTech Vision. We're happy to have MedTech Women's help in promoting Device Talks West. Uh, we've really worked with a lot of great partners, and I could name a few. Obviously, MedTech Innovator is a big one. But uh, what I've also enjoyed about this conference process uh, is the is the willingness of all of our organizations to help each other and to ensure that all of our events are, are important. All of our events are powerful. All of our events are supported. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a special, we're, this is a special industry that, that we're, we're part of. I know you and I have been, uh, been blessed to be part of it for a long time. We, we worked together. What, what did we do the math? Was it 15 years ago when 16. we started working? 16 oh. years ago. Eat. So, and we're still here. Uh, and we're not going anywhere because there's nowhere else we'd rather be. So uh, thanks to everyone who's helping us make Device Talks West a success. It's, uh, it's, uh, we're truly grateful. Hi, everyone. I just want to let you know, I recorded this interview while I was at uh, the Mullings Group Studios. And so Daniel and I were talking 
on camera and we'll have video excerpts of that, perhaps the whole interview uh, later next week. So uh, enjoy this audio version of my interview with Daniel Hawkins of Avail Med Systems. Well, Daniel Hawkins, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. Good to be here. This is our first full-length interview, podcast interview, uh, through a, through the powers of TV, through through screens. So <laughs> you are blazing new trails, and it's only fitting for uh, for you, the founder of Avail Med Systems, to be blazing this this telepodcasting path. So thanks for taking part. Absolutely. So uh, with all the podcasts, you were actually on the podcast in its early, early days. Uh, I think it was September 2020, so a few months after we had launched it uh, for, for the reasons that were necessary at the time. Uh, but so I, won't, I won't ask folks to go way back and to kind of revisit your background. We'll just, we'll just do that right now. As always, we'd love to learn about folks and their, their path into to MedTech. You founded many, many companies. We can review a few of them in a moment. But what was that first thing that uh, that drew you to the medical device industry? Uh, it's a bit of a bizarre one. It was a combination of an entrepreneurship when I was really young and the fact that my dad's a doc. Ah. And um, the combination of two of those together, um, it just felt natural. I wanted to be in medicine in some form or fashion. And back when you could pretty easily get people into procedure rooms, I'm old enough to be able to say back when I was 18, uh-huh. uh, before college, my dad had me in an, o- uh, in an operating room in OR, and I got to see a little bit of a procedure. And it was interesting what was happening on the table, but the back table was fascinating, <laughs> right? So for me, it was, it, was, it was a mashup. It was a combination of business and medicine together, and it, uh, I'm, I'm more of a touch and feel mechanical guy, if you will, and, and that just made medical devices a natural. And then really the other reason, Tom is my dad treated patients one-to-one and mm-hmm. I had this burn and itch to make it one-to-many mm-hmm. and the better way to do that is through technology that enabled the surgeons the men and women who do that every day to take care of us as patients uh, to do more and do better so that's that's what that's what got me there that was the reason why I have this image of your dad trying to get your attention like saying come over here this is where the action is and you're looking at the back table at all the cool gadgets <laughs> i'm on the back table I'm the back what is this thing a stapler like, what? <laughs> right, no it was fun and how did you fare with the uh with the blood that's involved in surgery did, you... uh you know it, it didn't bother me no okay all right it just really it didn't bother me no. The place where I got my initial indoctrination, that was just a simple, uh, it was a small incision. It was some version of like a lap coli or something like that. It was very, it was nominally speaking a benign procedure. The first real procedure I went into was when I was with Intuitive in the very, very early days. Um, jumping a little bit into my background there, post-business school, I ended up uh, uh, getting immediately into med tech and angioplasty and then found my way as the first non-technical person at Intuitive. And um, Fred, Fred Mall asked me to poke around on what markets might be interesting and cardiac surgery was starting to emerge. And Tom, I'd never been in a cardiac surgery procedure, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I, I, I walk in and, and there was skin and then there wasn't. Uh, there was cracking, there was saws. <laughs> and for me, it was immediately fascinating. It was extraordinarily fascinating. And I found myself watching the wrist of the surgeon and imagining the Da Vinci wrist. And, uh, so no, I, I didn't have any problem with it, but that was my first real procedure. That's was great. That. Uh, open heart surgery from uh, angioplasty to open heart surgery—that's a big jump, by the way. 
and what an early company to have on your uh, or early in your resume. What a company to have early in your resume. Intuitive. Uh, talk a little bit about how you were involved in the company and, and how have things played out comp- compared to how you thought they might have played out uh, at the time. Yeah. Uh, so I got into the company because I was I was at ACS, what is now Abbott Vascular by way of Guidant, um, doing angioplasty stuff, and I got an itch to be in a startup. Um, I went to one that is still out there now. It's no longer a startup. It's very much a public company. It's called Omnicell. I was there for a beat, I'll say, and it just wasn't for me. It wasn't clinical. So I called uh, somebody who I believe you know, Wendy Hutton, who's now over at Canaan Partners. Sure. So she was with Mayfield Funds at the time. And I said, Wendy, I, I got to be back in clinical. I mean, I, 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 would, I have to do something in clinical. Um, and I would do something disruptive and I want to be really cool. And she said, well, we're incubating this, this robotic surgery company. Why don't you come on over and talk to the founder? Well, Fred was actually there with Russell Hirsch and, and Wendy in Mayfield's office wow. incubating intuitive. So I started chatting with him when there were sort of three people around the table. And I joined when there were five people around the table. So I was number six. And um, earliest of early days, how did I get in? There was no email. There was no, no, I just badgered the hell out of Fred on the phone. <laughs> I got him on the phone. Um, and uh, he's decided to give me a shot. And um, we poked around and it turned out there was something there to be done. And in the, in the earliest of days, um, we envisioned that robotics would find its way across a variety of procedures, thinking first it would be cardiac, that it would be um, closed chest coronary bypass. Mm-hmm. And that turns out to be a really not good application because you need to manipulate the heart in ways um, that are really just not feasible using robotics in a, in a meaningful way. Um, I, w- I would describe them in my opinion, that the uh, risk-reward ratio is a little bit off in that. So cardiac surgery was not an awesome place to start. I'll say closed chest cardiac surgery. Um, I would say it's played out differently than I thought, and, and I think anybody who's being sort of upfront would say that it's different in as much as it wasn't obvious that pelvic surgery is where everybody was going to end up. Starting with prostate, going then into um, to women's health topics, if you will, hysterectomies and the like, and then even further, um, it it uh, it has played out um, otherwise in terms of adoption characteristics. I'd say very much the way we thought. Um, it it started off with the haves and the haves nots, and then it became an arms race for for customers to have the robots. And um, I guess the place where I would say I'm surprised now. Tom, is that I thought it would be in more procedures now mm-hmm. than it necessarily is. That it would be a broader base of procedures than it is. I have the uh, um, I have the somewhat dubious distinction of writing the market section of the S one, um, <laughs> where <laughs> so my charge was what procedures could we use this in? So I created this long list of procedures that it could be used in back-checked it with Fred, and then I bought a bunch of data and ran a bunch of analysis to figure out how many procedure rooms and what the procedure volume is. It's this huge matrix I created, and they're like through this much of the matrix. Right? And there's all this stuff that was otherwise supposed to be there. So um, from that perspective, I would say, um, you know, not, not quite what I thought. Um, more than I thought from the perspective of ecosystem and, and AI-related things, we didn't know anything about that in 1999 mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't know anything about it 
Um, and I would say robotics then going outside of soft tissue into heart tissue, going outside of rigid into flexible, nobody could have predicted that. Possibly Fred, because he came up with Hanson Medical early and tried to go on the flexible robotic, robotic end. Um, but I don't think anybody really knew that was coming in. And uh, I would argue that robotics is still in its infancy. Sure. And There's I mean, a lot left. And it's such a unique, it's, it, it's not your typical med tech startup for sure. I mean, you're, you're not creating a device that's going to perform one simple, quote unquote, simple procedure better. Yeah. You're recreating a whole way of delivering care. So it was a pretty bold charter. So I guess if you got a yes. fraction of what you were shooting for, that's, that's pretty good. That's right. That's pretty good. <laughs> I would say it's pretty good. Yeah. And I'm sure it's not lost on folks that there was a time period, it's since reversed back, there was a time period where Intuitive was more valuable than the largest independent med tech company in the world being Medtronic. Wow. It's been, I don't know if you knew that, but uh, market cap wise, it actually went past them for you know several days in a row. And now maybe they're sort of 3% apart, but that's still by itself pretty impressive. They're very impressive indeed. So the other company I want to zero in on, because you founded so many, but Shockwave, I think, is one of those great stories yeah. where you, you've even got an, an animated story of the, the, the founding of you with you and, and your co-founders in a garage, of course, uh, yes, of course. frying eggs yeah. with, uh, with ultrasound. <laughs> with lipid yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. what, was, what was that experience like? I mean, that just, I think anyone who's interested in starting a company has that experience in mind as, as, as how they want their what how they want their experience to be yeah and you know it's uh i I will say for budding founders out there it's a lot more glamorous in history than it is in in present right um the garage wasn't glamorous it looked great in the animation okay uh, i'll say it was hard i'll say it was hard um so you know, I, I found my way to what was probably at that time in my career, one of the coolest jobs I could have ever hoped for. And that is uh, a couple of venture firms provided capital for me and an engineer to explore. And the charter was simple, find an unmet clinical need and either in license if existing technology is out there that'll serve it or invent to solve the problem. And that was the whole instruction set. Wow. Yeah, right. So um, my job was to find the MAC clinical need. So I went logically, um, head to toe, and figured out, you know, what different areas are interesting and what markets are out there. That came about because I took a look at, uh, I was taking a look, I should say, at um, urology and came to understand lithotripsy for kidney stones. And my co-founder, John Adams, had uh, he's an engineer, and he had some understanding of lithotripsy. So over a Subway sandwich, he educated me on what lithotripsy was and how it worked. And then you sort of turn the calendar pages a few, and it popped into my head. You could take lithotripsy, miniaturize it, jam it in an angioplasty balloon, and pre-fracture calcium prior to dilation. And if you did that, you could get a better clinical result. It would be safer and you would have fewer dissections, which is one of the negative aspects of angioplasty. Um, and you would end up in the coronary space in particular, having a better final outcome that should be more durable because you're able to open the vessel better. And lo and behold, it worked embarrassingly more successfully than I thought it would. Um, and the company got launched in that way. Um, I will say though, the part that was hard is we came up with all of that 
1990, uh, sorry, 19, yeah, 19, 2009, yeah, sorry. Okay. I keep saying 19. I think <laughs> you were doing that and intuitive at the same intuitive. time. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Um, no, it was 2008 we came up with all of that, and we're trying to raise money in 2009. And anybody who spent a minute in the industry around that time period knows that's not going to be successful, and it wasn't. So the venture guys said, hey, this dog's not going to hunt. Um, I acquired the IP privately myself. Hmm from the, uh, from the uh, incubator that we had. We shut down the incubator. So here I am with IP, and then I worked with Wilson Sonsini, in particular Casey McGlynn and, and Scott Morano, and um, we started Chocolate, a piece of just a series of paperwork right in front of us. Shut down the incubator, take the IP, shut down the incubator, license the uh, incubator to a company we had formed two minutes ago called Chocolate, and go forward with, with uh, Shockwave on, on Angel Money. Uh, we did that for three years, friends and family in Angel. And then in February of 12, um, Fred Mull had led a process of financing and um, uh, led a, what became our Series A. And in February, 12, uh, February of 12, I took over as uh, CEO full-time and ran that for five and a half years. And you uh, ultimately uh, stepped aside as CEO. I mean, did you have a desire to, now the company's public, it's out there banging elbows with the big boys. Uh, was that yeah. never your, something you wanted to pursue? Your, your... I did not want to run a public company, yeah. candidly. Um, I, I invented the technology when my now almost 16-year-old son was was born, literally. The, wow. uh the first email that, that, and this became a patent-related thing, as you might imagine, but the very first email that was shot around um, uh, that, that, that talked about angioplasty with lithotripsy built in was days after my son was born. Now, you fast forward, and um, he was about nine years old when I made the decision um, to step aside, and Doug Ocho came in. And candidly, Doug's done a way better job than I could have because I'm, I'm better on the front end of things. Yeah. Ideation through, you know, some segment of I probably could have been just I, been just fine until 20 or 30 million in revenues. But I'm not the guy to take it from sort of 30 million in revenues to 680 million in revenues. That's that's a Doug Godshall thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's done a beautiful job doing that. Uh, but really, Tom, we had just finished our Series C. And one of our investors was T. Rowe Price, and I knew we were going public. And I thought, wait a minute, no moss here. I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm literally never going to see my son. And in uh, the, the uh, year prior, I had traveled more than a quarter of a million miles wow. on one airline for, for Shockwave. And I thought, yeah, I can't. I just can't do this. Uh, so it, it, it worked out well. Worked that's out well. So I was able to start a veil, and that's the uh, rest is history. That's a great reason to make such a decision. So let's let's yeah. move in, into a veil. Uh, as I said, you and I uh, came to know one another in 2020 when companies uh, like a veil, which were bringing some sort of telepresence, we'll say, I don't want to say telecommunications, to the ORs to sort of combat the limits of COVID uh, we're, we're, we're coming to the forefront. However, Avail predates that. Uh, I think it was 2017 you started. So talk a bit about the origins yep. of Avail. And um, then we're going to talk about, the, the. I think 
maybe there are multiple iterations or maybe just I have multiple perceptions, but I'd like to follow Avail through its, uh, through its growth. Sure. So um, the idea for it came really in some respects for me, and the, my, I'll say my version of the idea for it uh, came on the heels of all that quarter of a million miles in travel that I described. So probably one of the craziest stories I have, true story, is that we needed to enroll a couple of patients into the shockwave peripheral vascular regulatory trial. And there are really two people in the company that could support the physician in Auckland, New Zealand for that. And one of them is, uh, was at the time a practicing cardiologist and the other one was me. Hmm. So I drew the straw because <laughs> the practicing cardiologist couldn't break away. Right. We would, we would otherwise trade back and forth and he couldn't break away. So I was like, all right, fine. I'll take another one in a row here. And I flew to Auckland, New Zealand. I land um, probably seven or eight in the morning, whatever it was. I went straight to the procedure room, did three procedures, had dinner, and I flew home. That's really? crazy. Yeah. That's nuts. And, you know, you look at that and you kind of go, wait a minute. If I'm able to do video calling on my phone, why can't we do something so that Guys don't have to travel like that. I wouldn't have to do that. Industry wouldn't have to do that. And that started to blossom. And it blossomed into this basic notion that so much of med tech happens in the procedure world. Engineers need to go in to learn and be able to understand what problems are so that they can design properly. Clinical trials are enrolled, like the example I just gave in New Zealand. When you're training sales reps, they need to see procedures. Recordings are fine, but live in person is how it really needs to go. When you're launching a product, the exact same thing. When you're proctoring for new new surgeon or, or new clinician capability, exact same thing. When you're covering procedures uh, in the marketplace after a product is launched, exact same thing. But here's the issue. Fundamentally, if you take a look, wind back to when I started my career in 93, there are about 5,000 hospitals, maybe 5,500, maybe 1,000 ASCs, and they were mostly gastro with a, a, a couple of other things in there, but mostly gastro. Um, now there's probably 5,000, 5,500 hospitals, and depending on whose numbers you look at, 12,000 ASCs. All right, wow. so you've had a nearly 3x, you know, it's called two, two and a little bit, two and a half x, whatever, number of sites of service. The procedure volume has not grown two and a half X in that time period across all specialties. It hasn't. And the sales forces and clinical specialist teams most certainly haven't grown two and a half X across that whole time period. So what does that, what does that mean? It means on average for each site of service, you have fewer procedures than you used to by, by ratio of the amount of time people are spending in there. What, and let me draw a very specific example that hits home for those in orthopedics. When hips and knees moved to an ASC environment, right? So they used to be just in acute care and mm -hmm. then they started being reimbursable in ASCs. In many instances, and we watched this happen, 40, 50% of procedure volume moved to ASCs from the acute care setting. So you had a sales representative and a clinical specialist who would otherwise cover procedures in an acute care setting. And I'm going to make it up and say that's 500 cases. 40% of that moves over. So now you have a couple of hundred cases that are now sprinkled across a couple of ASCs in that same geography. So that same team now needs to cover acute care and multiple ASC environments, but it's the same people. Mm -hmm. 
they didn't add people. So now they're running all over the place. Right. And that running all over the place is really inefficient. And, and what was historically 60 plus percent of uh, field person's time spent in physical logistics has gone up. It's even higher than that, depending on the industry category. That's extraordinary when you think about the cost of the folks that are out in the field, mm-hmm. the value they provide. And then the fact that if they're in a room, they can't be anywhere else. If they're driving, they can't help anybody. Right. So how do you as a med tech organization effectively maintain the relationship with your customer when you're spending more and more time running all over the place? You can't add more bodies Mm -hmm. because Wall Street's got pressure on your income statement. So what do you do? Um, That all wrapped around this notion of remote makes so much sense, not for 100 percent of any procedures coverage. But depending on the location, physical location, site of service, and the category, it might be 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%. Probably shouldn't be more than 40 depending on the category. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you can go a little further. We've had some manufacturers say to us, in this category, we might want to go 80% call center. Uh, okay, that's a choice. But that's not really what, what folks are really saying. What they're saying is, I want to use the same salespeople we have now and make them more efficient so we can cover more places without adding more more people onto onto our field teams. And and that's what the industry is doing with respect to remote and procedure coverage. Speaking holistically, and I, I want to get into exactly what Avail is offering um, in a minute, uh, just a just brief description of the system so people know what we're talking about. But I, I don't think I've given enough attention to how that migration of procedures to smaller clinics, to ASCs, has really impacted medtech overall. The companies, how they interact with customers, but also the innovation, yes. the way you're approaching care, who's performing yep. the care, what the patients need, you know, follow up. They're not staying in hospital beds, they're going home. You've been creating medical device companies for a couple of decades, medical device companies and devices for a couple of decades. Is it is it considerably different doing so now than it was a couple of decades yeah. ago? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and um, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll share an anecdote as part of my uh, 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 description of how the industry has handled it. I happened to be in the corporate office of, of one of the three uh, leading cardiovascular businesses in the industry. Right around the time period, uh, CMS was making their final decision about moving um, – uh, uh, primary stenting into an ASC environment, allowing reimbursement for one and two stent placements in an ASC environment. And I asked the head of that business in that particular um, uh, company, how are you going to handle the ASC transition if, in fact, CMS allows reimbursement in ASCs? The leader of that business just paused. Mm-hmm. That was a very long pause. <laughs> And then they said, I have no idea. I just literally don't know how I'm going to handle it. Because now we've got more sites of service. Mm -hmm. There's higher pricing pressure in ASCs. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but the same part number can be 40% lower price in an ASC relative to acute care. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Not only do you have more sites of service, you you have pricing pressure. Now, um, in a broad perspective, you just you you asked me the question of are things different? 
Yes. As a med tech company, if you have ASCs, now you have to deal with two different pricings. You have to deal with pricing transparency because the doc who works in the ASC also works in acute care. Mm-hmm. Might be the exact same doc, right? So they, they handle some portion of their patient volume that they used to be 100% acute care. Now they've got 20, 30, 40, whatever it is, percent down the street in their own ASC. And they see the pricing over in the ASC. So when they hear about the pricing in acute care, they kind of go, what? I don't understand. Yeah. Pricing transparency, that's kind of a problem. Interesting. You've got, yeah, interesting. You've got issues around for those physicians who operate exclusively or nearly exclusively out of ASCs, MedTech has a very different problem in product launches and in training because now they've got so many locations they need to conduct training. Mm-hmm. And the the uh, volume that goes through each one of those locations is lower than it used to be. So the efficiency of the training process needs to change. It fundamentally has to change. Then you've got another interesting dynamic, and that is the surgeons who are operating in ASCs can't walk down the hall four operating rooms away and ask one of their colleagues to help. They can't send a nurse or a tech to go get a colleague on another floor in the facility to come over and take a look at a procedure for right in the middle because it doesn't exist. ASCs might have one, two, three procedure rooms, and that's it. They might have a small group of folks together, but they're not all there on the same day. So you're really closer to operating solo. So technologies need to be different. Training needs to be different. And support of those physicians needs to be modified in order to accommodate appropriate for a particular clinical indication, accommodate the needs Mm -hmm. that a surgeon might have or an interventionist might have mid-procedure. Lower acuity procedures tend to be in those remote environments or I'll say ambulatory environments. But as acuity of those procedures starts to walk up and starts to look more and more like acute care level of procedural complexity, this is hard. Mm -hmm. This becomes a real issue. Much like a couple of decades ago, rural was a real issue. Well, rural hospitals are still a real issue. Supporting them and supporting procedures and getting training out there and whatnot. But yes, um, short answer into your question, yes, 100%. It's different. The world is different now. Well, well let, let's focus on, uh, on your solution to kind of help uh, lessen the impact of that, of that difference. Talk quickly just about, give us a sense of what the avail system offers. Um, you know, I think we all have a, the function in our mind, but what is, what is physically there in the room? So we've gone um, gone the route of a combination of hardware and software. And that was a very important strategic decision early on in creating what is really telepresence for, for procedural activity uh, and bringing people into the room uh, from MedTech. Um, the reason we did that is because if you can't control the hardware, you can't control the user experience. The inputs from the video and the audio, the simplicity of the setup, it needs to be predictable. It needs to be uh, very quick to set up, and it needs to be very, very consistent and very, very reliable. So in order to do that, we built a tower of sorts. It's on wheels. Um, it can be taken from the back wall, put next to the table. Mm-hmm. It has a screen on it, plugins for intraprocedural imaging, think angio, echo, robotic surgery feeds, laparoscope feeds, whatever it is. It's just an HDMI. Our system does all the rest of the smarts. You just plug in an HDMI cable, whatever the feed is. 
Um, it's got integrated speakers and microphones uh, and integrated cameras. Remotely, somebody has a user interface, membership controlled access, where they they can then get access to the procedure room. I'll describe how in a second. And they can actually control the cameras. Mechanically, the cameras are moving based on input that is being done through our software in some remote location. They can see the intra-procedural imaging, speak live with zero latency to the physicians, the surgeons that are operating. And it's much like a um, an in-room experience, but I'll describe it as enhanced because you've got views you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. You're mm-hmm. able to draw on the screen and telestrate. You can put up multiple video feeds on the screen at the same time. You can bring in third-party software into it, and I, I think we, um, we should probably chat about that a little bit so that you can bring in uh, workflow management software or AI or ML-driven uh, software. You can't really do that so simply if you're in the procedure room, so we've enhanced the experience. Um, but fundamentally in the room, you should think uh, a cart slash tower sort of thing with a screen on it, uh, a boom arm, a couple of cameras, and wires going to imaging equipment and to the wall for power and ethernet. I, I want to talk in a moment about how your medical device company partners are employing all of that, but you mentioned the, the software element. Uh, what is the significance of that? You, you I think, made reference of that at, uh, at Device Talks West last year, uh, since I know we had an article about it in medical design and outsourcing uh, mm-hmm. soon after that. But what is the intention of, intention of that? And how will uh, how will it fit into your overall operation for for Avail? So um, one of the other advantages of hardware is that we've got computing power in the operating room. We've got a node on a network. Or stated differently, we own a little square of real estate in the operating room. All of our hardware sits on our balance sheet, so we get to control what is in that hardware. Uh, we don't need to worry about a customer capital acquisition process and the fact that, you know, we would otherwise have to have customer permission to modify it and all that. We control it all because it sits in our balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, that excess computing power can serve as a, as a host for third-party software, right? So think about it as um, what will ultimately become an app store of a curated app store of capability that can can be um, uh, that can leverage the computing power locally, can leverage our security internet connection to the cloud, can use our cameras for computer vision and machine learning uh, capability. Can all be driven locally on our hardware, so that software companies don't need to develop all of that the hardware. They can simply contract with us to put it on our system. Um, those could be third party independent, like our intelligence, which is the one we've launched for workflow management in the orthopedic space. Or it can be part of a large med tech company that is otherwise wanting to have uh, software capability in a procedure room and are, would otherwise have to build their own piece of hardware to do it, right? So we're in dialogues about exactly that with respect to the robotic ecosystem around, um, you know, around, uh, I'll say, new entrants in the robotic space, non-intuitive new entrants in the robotic space as well as uh, an ability really to do workflow management and, and clinically driven capability that is software that large cap med tech companies are developing. Um, we can host all that for them in, in what amounts to a drop down menu app store kind of way. Mm-hmm. 
So let's tie it all together. You'll be speaking at Device Talks West on sort of Avail's charter going forward. Uh, how is Avail helping medical device companies change the way they're, they're doing business? So um, we announced at this point, um, not quite a year ago, um, but in November of last year, a partnership with uh, Medtronic Neurovascular. That was the first of what I would call exclusives. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, you know, committed, committed revenue from our perspective, but exclusive deals. And what that has done is it enabled Medtronic Neurovascular to leverage our platform to change how they engage with their customers. What does that mean? Yes, it, it is useful for support, as we discussed previously, to running around and avoidance of that. It's so much more than that. Their engineers are now able to get into procedure rooms when there's a, an interesting case that is happening. Um, there can be an outbound to an engineer uh, back at headquarters. A bunch of engineers can get into a conference room and see live what a physician has been trying to describe, but now there's a live example of it. They can learn right there and improve their ability to, to, uh, to design better uh, and more effective medical devices. Clinical trial patients, are, are can and are being enrolled mm-hmm. uh, via a remote platform. So now your clinical trials run faster, right? Um, 11,000 people were trained um, on, on Medtronic neurovascular products using only a handful of our consoles. And I mean, globally. So all over the world, there are folks who have watched procedures live as part of training that neurovascular uh, was in, and, and needs to be doing on an ongoing basis but using Avail to do it. I was part of a procedure last Friday out of UCLA where there was there were hundreds of people on a call where um, a physician by the name of Jerry Duckwell was doing a uh, was doing a flow diversion case. And there were hundreds of people on the call learning, um, learning live uh, about his techniques and, and, and how he does it. And he has nuances in his techniques that are extraordinarily valuable. As a clinician, you'd otherwise have to wait till the annual meeting to be able to get that. Um, so how, how, are they, how are they changing their business? They're bringing folks from outside of the procedure room at will into the procedure room, mm-hmm. not only to enhance the relationship between the company and their customers, but enhance their ability to train and propagate their technologies across uh, the clinical community that they serve. And, and as Dan Bowles put it very, very well, when I was chatting with him, I want to say it was at this point about a year ago before we did the deal, uh, he said, Daniel, um, the future of the neurovascular space um, requires that today we change our business model. And I want to change our business model and build it around remote, make a remote an integral part of what we do. Um, and our salespeople are going to leverage it. Our field teams are, are going to leverage it to be able to reach customers they can't otherwise reach with the frequency that they'd like to. Their frequency of, of interaction has, has increased 40 and 50% in the counts where we've already installed. Increased, mm-hmm. right? So with that, now you have a better relationship and, and that should propagate um, a future of, of, uh, of, uh, of most certainly you know, more procedure support that hopefully leads to to uh, uh, to more utilization past that. Um, in addition to all of that, they've they've brought their engineers in and created tighter relationships that way. Well, what we did by doing that, Tom, essentially we kicked a hornet's nest, right? So that was that was last November. 
since then, we've had inbounds come to us, and we're currently in dialogues for exclusives in electrophysiology and CRM, general surgery and robotics, spine, craniomaxillofacial, lung, gynecology, uh, lung health and gynecology, and in vascular, and it just continues, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, before we started, you asked me how I'm doing. I'm busy. <laughs> we're, we're definitely really busy uh, because there's interest in leveraging remote to change business models. So the the opportunity for exclusivity, just uh, if you would just d- uh, dive into that a little bit, was it what what was it that convinced you to go that route? Um, because I, I imagine there's a, can be an argument to be made for opening up to everybody. Why not? You've got Medtech, yeah. Medtronic Neurovascular. You've got a lot of other neurovascular companies that would want to do it as well. What's the what's the power of exclusivity for for Avail? And I can mm-hmm. envision it for your partners, but just expand on that a bit. A bit. What does it provide to, to both parties? So um, really, we started off, Tom, with a business model of we're going to put a uh, one of our consoles in a procedure room. And if you're a member of the Avail network as a manufacturer, you can use that console and you pay us for the time that you used. Right. So we were charging time-based utilization. And if you didn't use it, you didn't use it. And we started to do, we poked around and did our customer research when we started to see lots of dabbling, but not the kind of true committed lockdown engagement that we anticipated we would see. The number one thing we heard was, well, to start using remote, Daniel, it's going to force us to change our relationship with our customer a little bit and get them used to it. We don't want to be the ones to carry that water Mm -hmm. if our competition can come right behind us and leverage the work we just did. So if you're willing to do it exclusively, that's a little different. Mm -hmm. And we heard that a number of times. And candidly, the very first exclusivity conversations we had were for north of a thousand deployments in, in, in locations all over the United States, but it was not utilization in the way that we thought best served what we were trying to do at Avail with a broad based sort of change the way you do business way. The very first one of those came from uh, Dan Bowles and the neurovascular team over at Medtronic. And since then, the rest of the industry has started to watch what's happened there, heard about it, seen the press, seen what's happened on LinkedIn and has otherwise been announced. And they're starting to say to themselves, gee, I'd like to replicate that. And those are the segments that I started to describe. Mm-hmm. Some of those are, of course, within Medtronic, and most of them are not. And and we're, we're seeing that kind of feedback come back saying, hold on a second. You mean I can I can do this? Well, yeah, you can. Can I get in my engineers? Yeah. Can I enroll a clinical trial? Yeah. So our advantage in all of that, Tom, is, is that um, industry's dabbling tasting menu, mm-hmm. exclusives make it interesting for industry to sit down at the table. Now let's figure out a way to really change our business model. And that's happened in a variety of segments. So Right now, we have domestic and international exclusive dialogues across some of the categories I described because of that. Fantastic. Well, I know you were, you were kind enough to uh, to have Medtronic Neurovascular and yourselves at Device Talks West last year mm-hmm. to announce the deal yep. and to to take questions from the audience. And I remember the the room was ridiculously packed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. We needed yeah, a bigger we that. needed a bigger boat for that one. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to having you at Device Talks West this year. Uh, no pressure. I'm not looking for you to pack a room again, but it would be great if you had some some big news to share. But uh, regardless, uh, I, I, I hope folks will 
will join us there and, and get a glimpse of uh, what Avail is, is offering for the future. So, Daniel, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much, Tom. Appreciate it and look forward to the, uh, looking forward to Device Talks West as well. It's always a great one. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Kayleen Brown, this is the time where we get to invite people to reach out to us and once again, let us know. Other than pushing the little button on the email, which again is the coolest thing ever created, uh, how can folks find you out there on, on social media land? Well, on Twitter, now X, I am at <laughs> I always laugh at that now. Uh, I am M Tech Millennial, so short for Med Tech Millennial. That's again, that's M Tech Millennial, or you can search for Kayleen Brown. And on LinkedIn, I am Kayleen Brown. And as I heard this week, Kayleen, you are everywhere. So hopefully it'll be easy for you to find me on LinkedIn. I really do encourage you to connect. Uh, and then you can also email me directly at kbrown at willingtoworkhardermedia.com, WTWHmedia.com. Look at you. You've, you've got the email uh, the email stated clearly. I always uh, stumble over that one. So uh, I'm glad you uh, glad you're able to get that one out. I'll, I'll I'll piggyback off that. My email, as you can find out, if you click on those cute little buttons on the emails, is uh, T Salemi at wtwhmedia.com. But of course, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not xing much anymore. Uh, that's just. Uh, a little dumpster fiery and I'll just stay away, but uh, glad you millennials have more, uh, more uh, resilience than I do, but uh, great. Kayleen, well, it was great to see you this week. Um, and it's great to, to talk to you on zoom. And I'm really excited about the cool stuff that's going to happen. Not only at device talks West, but at, at device talks, we had a little, a uh, little bullet point. We're going to talk about future projects, but I think we can save that for a future podcast, but folks trust us. Uh, we got a lot, a lot of cool stuff coming your way. So uh, buckle up. Make sure you uh, follow Device Talks on LinkedIn. Make sure you're connected with Kayleen and myself. Of course, Mass Device as well. And uh, you will not be disappointed and you will be well-informed and wildly engaged, we promise.